Hi, good evening. Thanks so much for, for making it here tonight, um, despite everything that's going on in London today. Um, it's great to have you here at LSE. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research officer at the Kuwait program here at the LSE. And tonight, as you know, we're, we'll be talking about women's rights in the Gulf states uh, with Lulu Sabah and Hatuna Fasi. Lulu Sabah is a founding member of Abolish 153, which is the campaign to abolish statutes and laws that effectively give men regulatory, judicial, and executive power, perpetuating gender inequality, and the justification for violence over females in Kuwait and, and elsewhere in the GCC and the Arab world. Lulu received an MA in Social and Cultural History from Burbeck College, University of London, and is also the founding and direct, founder and director of JAM, an art advisory firm which specializes in contemporary Arab and Iranian art. Hatuna Fasi is a Saudi historian specializing in women's history, an associate professor at King Saud University, and is at the Department of International Affairs at Qatar University. Hatun received her PhD from the University of Manchester here in the UK. Hatun also has a column in Al Riyadh, a daily national newspaper, and is a well-known commentator on Saudi women's issues for the national and international media. She also led delegates of Saudi, uh, suffragettes of Saudi women in the municipal councils in 2015. Um, and also in 2012, she was decorated a knight in the order of national merit, uh, I won't try to say the French, but by the President of the Republic of France. So we have very esteemed panelists tonight, so I, I won't speak too much, but I'll go ahead and hand it over to them. Lulu will speak first. They'll both speak for about 15 minutes, and then we'll open it up to questions and answers. So thank you. Hello, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to thank uh, Dr. Courtney Freer for um, giving me the opportunity to speak today. And it's an honor to be sharing the stage with Dr. Hatun Nafasi, a distinguished historian and professor. Um, to understand the gender policies that exist in Kuwait today, it's important to have an idea of the formation of Kuwait pre-independence. So this is going to be a bit of a socio-cultural, historical, legal um, presentation. Kuwait was founded in the early 18th century as a city-state. In the 1750s, the leading families had chosen the Asabah family to rule through a voluntary consensus based on the division of economic and political responsibilities. Hold on. Wait. Okay. Specifically, they had agreed that Sabah I would be responsible for handling the community's daily affairs and its relations with external powers, namely the Ottomans and, and Britain. They, in turn, would support him financially by contributing a portion of their earnings from trade and pearl diving, provided that he consulted them on major decisions. This formula of joint governing distinguished Kuwait from its neighbors. When oil was discovered in 1938, I'm not doing this right. It's just up and down, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh -uh. See, it's not really working. Oh, this one had that. This oh, one? Maybe that one. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> when oil was discovered in 1938, the merchants and elites called for a council to be established and demanded a say in the distribution of the new revenues. A council was formed consisting of those who had studied in Iraq and were influenced by the ideology of pan-Arabism. That was an ideology that was a threat to the ruling class. Um, in, during, um, during his reign, okay, 
It faced its first challenge during the autocratic rule of Mubarak, 1896 to 1915, but his financial dependence on the merchants forced him to back down. During his reign in 1899, Kuwait and Britain signed a protectorate treaty, although Britain did not interfere in internal affairs. Judicial authority remained in the hands of the emir who would refer criminal and personal status cases to an Islamic Sharia judge. Sorry, I got it all mixed up. Okay. So the elected council introduced and ratified the basic law, an almost exact copy of the Iraqi constitution. When the council demanded direct contact with the British American Kuwait Oil Company, Britain's supportive position towards reforms instantly changed, marking a radical change in internal power relations between the ruling family and the merchant class. Oil consolidated the power of the ruling family as the main controller of oil revenues. Sheikh Ahmed al-Jabr dissolved the council and, like his grandfather, resorted to the power of the Bedouin tribes to quell the demonstrations that ensued. Kuwait had originated from a homogenous Sunni tribal unit, which changed over time to be divided along various markers that range from sectarian, Sunni Shiite, to ethnic, Arab-Persian, to socioeconomic, tribal versus urban, otherwise known as Al-Kharaj, the Bedouin tribes, versus Hathar, settled tribes, not to mention the division between Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis. The Department of Legal Advice and Legislation, entrusted with drafting laws proposed by government bodies, was established in 1960. Article 153 of the Penal Code, which I will speak of later, was included at this time. The legal experts who helped draft Kuwait's constitution after its independence in 1961 were Egyptians. Thus, Article 29 of the Kuwaiti Constitution of 1962, which specifically says, without distinction to gender, is a modified version of Article 31 of the 1956 Egyptian Constitution. In 1962, the Constituent Assembly, responsible for implementing the new state's legal system, introduced Election Law No. 35, which withheld women's political rights. Kuwait was allowed UN membership in May 1963, only after the Constitution was ratified and the first parliamentary elections were held. Prior to the 1960s, women were not, did not participate in public life. Uh, schools for girls began at the, late, in the end of the 50s. The main publicly raised gender issues was access to education and later access to the labor force. Political consciousness only began in the 60s and 70s. According to Marwa Shalabi's report on women's political representation in Kuwait, published by the Baker Institute for Public Policy, efforts were made since the 1970s to grant women their political rights, including 12 different requests presented by male MPs and requested attempts by the royal family to open discussion on a societal level and a legislative level. One of these early efforts was headed by Nuria al-Sadani. She submitted an equal rights bill to the Third Legislative, legislative Council in 1973. She was head of the Women's Cultural and Social Society, WCSS, which was established in 1963. The years between 1976 and 1981 marked the desertization of the Kuwaiti society. It was five years when um, parliament was dissolved and stayed dissolved. The Fourth Legislative Assembly was dissolved in 1976, mostly due to the rise of oppositional voices in parliament. The Fifth, in 1981, was composed of more tribal and Islamist members. This increase brought a set of conservative and traditional norms, which led to the fur further marginalization of women in the public sphere.
It took seven years to draft the Kuwaiti Personal Law Number no. 51, which is a law for the Sunni majority, which was issued in 1984, 20 years after Kuwait got its independence. The Shiites decided to keep their family legal status separate. The new law codified already existing religious canons on in matters like marriage, divorce, inheritance, etc. According to this law's provisions, a woman is not equal to a man in their family relations. She is inferior to him, belongs to him by virtue of their marriage contract, and is obliged by law to obey him. Her physical presence is not required to forge the marriage contract. The marriage should be conducted by the permission of her male guardian and the groom. A woman is not allowed to divorce her husband. If she wants to divorce her husband, she has to prove physical harm or, um, or get his consent, of course. He has an unrestricted right to marry four wives. In the early to mid-1970s, the Arab Women's Development Society, AWDS, established in 19, also established in 1963, challenged official policies on women's status and addressed issues of gender equality and women's citizenship rights. They also demanded that women be appointed as special attorneys to draft family law, that child allowances be provided to women, and that polygamy be restricted. The state took an active policy to protect the traditional family arrangement and reduce the influence of secular and feminist groups. In 1978, the government took specific measures to close down the AWDS. Law 24 of 1962, governing the activity of voluntary associations, which was partially amended in 1965 and still enforced today, um, it gives full, full uh, control over voluntary associations. So they have the right to, well, to give the license, to um, close down the elected board, to terminate if they don't feel the association is beneficial to society. Um, and, they, and they still have that contr those controls. The government took measures to support an Islamist perception of family extended and guided by the principle of obedience. According to Elham Manet's research, published in 2011, it boils down to the state's lack of legitimacy. The alliance between the Kuwaiti government and the Islamist movement has been characterized as a relationship of give and take in return for its loyalty against oppositional forces and support for government decisions, the Islamic movement was allowed to decimate its ideology through officially sanctioned societies and welfare organizations. By the late 1980s, the government support had taken institutional shape. Islamists competed with the established merchant group through Islamic economic institutions like Zakat House and the Kuwait Finance House, which are not supervised or monitored by the rules of the National Bank. It also controlled the boards of consumer and cooperation associations, along to those of labor, students, and teachers. Moreover, it occupied key positions and influence in state institutions, particularly the ministries of education, Islamic affairs, social affairs, and work, as well as Kuwait University and other institutions. The Emir's 1999 decree to grant women their political rights was mostly pressure from the United States for liberating Kuwait in 1991 as well as pressure from Kuwaiti women's rights activists. Parliament voted it down twice, only endorsing it six years later in 2005. One factor for its passing was heavy, heavy government lobbying, which had never occurred before. The Crown Prince, Sheikh Saad, had been staunchly opposed to women's suffrage. The current Emir, Sheikh Sabah al-Ahmed, had served as foreign minister from 1963 to 2003 and had understood the negative impact um, the, of the public image of Kuwait within the international community if women are excluded from the political arena. Unfortunately, as you can see from this table, women's chances of becoming an integral part of the legislative process are still very low 
due to cultural, institutional, and structural factors. In late 2015, Sorry, in late 2014, Dr. Anouda Shadr spearheaded a political campaign to abolish Article 153 from Kuwait's Penal Code, which gives men regulatory, judicial, and executive power over their female kin in blatant disregard of the Constitution, international agreements on human and women's rights, and even Islamic Sharia. The five founding members include Sindis Hamza, Sheikh Al-Nafisi, and Amira Bahbahani. Our two more recent members include Nawal Barak and Sharok Burhama, who are in the audience today. Due to the sensitivity of this topic, well, I, well, now I don't even need my notes because we've been living and breathing this campaign for the last three years. Um, but uh, we chose, there are many, many laws that are discriminatory against women, uh, but we chose to tackle this law because it is the most violent. Um, and we decided because of the sensitivity of this issue, considering how conservative the society has become, and living in a culture where things are meant to be swept under the carpet or taboo or not talked about, we decided to, besides the social media campaign, we decided to use art as a way to, um, well, raise funds, um, get this issue into the media, and to raise awareness for people within society to understand that the law actually exists because a lot of people did not even know of its existence. We um, funded a study uh, with Dr. Justin Gengler, who, Gengler, who will be here tomorrow. Sorry, one second. Sorry. Who did a nationwide survey to get just to get attitudes of violence against women, not specifically this law, but in general, and then specifically this law. And he found, suffice to say, I mean, he, he, it's a very detailed study, but suffice to say that half the Kuwaitis, 51% uh, male and 50% female, agreed with the statement that. Um, justice, the violence was justified if, women, if a woman was caught in the act of adultery. Um, so we, we decided to, in 2015, May 16, 2015, to mark 10 years since women obtained their political rights, we did an, our first um, contemporary art exhibition. A lot of artists from Kuwait, male and female, and regional artists contributed to this exhibition, and it got the issue into the media for the very first time in, in, such, a, in such a way. Um, we've done many other, uh, with that became an annual exhibition, we did one in Dubai as well. And we also realized by working on this issue that there were so many other issues that had to be dealt with as well. The fact that there are no shelters, so even if a woman felt that she is in, uh, at risk, uh, there's nowhere for her to go. Um, there was, um, um, I mean, beyond shelters, also first responders. So we, you know, we flew in uh, trainers from the U.S. to train first responders to deal with victims of gender-based violence. So it's it's a long, it's like the, the infrastructure, the support network, the awareness. There's still so much to do. Uh, in the symposium, we invited Rena Hosseini, who is a Jordanian women's activist, and she's been um, she's been working on this specific issue for 20 years. And as a result, um, when a woman gets killed um, there, they, they don't put it in the back of the newspaper now, they put it in the crime section as it should be. So people have this idea that, uh, oh, well, we're not like Jordan because you hear about it in Jordan. Well, you, it's reported on in Jordan. We've, we tried to get statistics at the Ministry of Justice and we couldn't get any statistics. Our philosophy is one is one too many. and the problem with this law is that it 
institutionalizes violence. And we have enough laws that tell us in multiple different ways that women are second-class citizens. But to say that it's, we have murder laws in this country, so we don't need a law that circumstances that allows a person to kill another person. It's murder. That's it. Um, but we're still trying to get those stats. Yeah. This is some of the images from the exhibition in both 2015 and 2016. And the next one will be on May 16th, which will be 12 years since women obtained their political rights in Kuwait. Now, on a positive note, after all that <laughs> negative information, um, there's been a, a, a blossoming of civil rights initiatives in Kuwait Five, you know, particularly in the last five years, but in the last decade. And a lot has to be said of the Kuwaiti women activists that came before us and fought so hard, like Lulu Mullah, and well, there's too many to mention. But, and none have really been able to enforce a change in gender policies on, uh, on, well, on a policy level. So the hope is that, you know, we haven't come too far and the pendulum hasn't swung too far to the conservatives and Islamists at a traditional thinking that we can abolish this law, not only in Kuwait, but across the GCC and any Arab country that's applicable. Thank you. Um, so now, thank you so much, Lulu. Um, I'll turn this off. Um, and I'll... Oh, yeah, I'll It's really uh, an honor to speak uh, to you today. Many thanks go to London School of Economics and uh, to the Kuwait program. Uh, with special thanks to Courtney Freer and Ian Sinclair for their organization. Thank you, Lulu, for this uh, very uh, uh, thorough, uh, detailed uh, historical background. Um, we usually uh, look at Kuwait as a um, as a progressive, <laughs> as a progressive Gulf uh, country state. Um, uh, um, well, it seems that we are. Um, well, no comment. <laughs> this is enough. <laughs> right. Uh, in this paper, I was asked to address two issues. Uh, the extent to which women today in the Gulf, in their, uh, in their own countries, face legal restrictions in everyday life. And the second is how do women endeavor to change the status quo. Uh, for the sake of time uh, and my expertise, I'll restrict my interaction and uh, presentation to Saudi Arabia and Saudi women. Um, I think you'll agree with me that Saudi women and Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia have always made headlines in the international media. However, this is not uh, all. We also have uh, women uh, keep, uh, keep in, uh, making the headlines internally as well. We believe that it became a common knowledge that Saudi Arabia equates to women and women's issues. Yeah, I think this is, became a common uh, a reaction to uh, 
especially in the uh, outside media. The minute uh, the country is mentioned uh, at the same time, all images and stories about suppressed women and or contradictory stories uh, will pop up. The question is why is that? And why is Saudi Arabia allowing for this issue to keep distorting its image abroad? This is the question. The one million, no, the million is not uh, that big enough, but uh, it is still, uh, it is a, a big question that all researchers are trying to address, trying to, to find uh, an answer, uh, a reasonable answer to, or uh, even uh, a logical one. Perhaps it's difficult to find a starting point uh, to answer that. Uh, any reading of uh, Saudi Arabia women's status will end up going back as early as the beginning of Islam, looking for explanations and looking for uh, sometimes justifications as well. I'll avoid that, <laughs> not go that far. <laughs> um, but I'll emphasize instead uh, uh, on the context. Saudi woman's case needs to be contextualized, no, contextualized within the debate of modernity, the debate of Islamic conservatism or revivalism, uh, the response to tight interpretations of Islam in the Muslim world and in Saudi Arabia. Saudi women's issues are not ancient issues, nor they are inherent to Islam. Actually, most of them are, in fact, a reflection of the inability of modern state of Saudi Arabia to deal with modernity when it hits its sacred land and sacred part of society, i.e. women. Uh, in this concise time, I shall address the context that uh, created and affected, shaped the case of Saudi women, uh, between brackets, uh, and how, they, uh, how she interacted with the, and responded to it internally and externally. Saudi Arabia's history has been shaped actually by three, in my mind, by three major factors, the geographic uh, location, uh, by Islam, and oil. Perhaps this is a simplification, but it gives at least a, a structure to how one can understand the major players in Saudi Arabia's current history. What formed the history of the state shaped also the past and present of Saudi women. Women's status in Saudi Arabia was formed by complexity of none, uh, on the one hand, the spatial sacred location of this country as the cradle of Islam, which means it carries uh, a sacred responsibility, identifying with it, transforms its message, believes that Saudi Arabia is the only true messenger and representative of Islam on the lines of strict reading of uh, Hanbalism, as you know. Uh, to achieve this, Saudi Arabia adopted a strict regulations uh, or adopted re strict regulations that affected education, economic and political participation, public appearance and legal status. Just to say a few. Women were limited to traditional disciplines in education, for example, and were averted from, um, from some others, such as engineering and archaeology. Today, these uh, limitations are um, uh, covered, by, covered up by uh, private schools or private universities, but, uh, or by transferring uh, some, some of these measures into postgraduate studies, such as archaeology, uh, uh, women can study that as postgraduate so that they will bring 
archaeological facts to the classroom to study. Other regulations limited their work opportunities within strict boundaries since it has to comply with the state's guidelines that prevent, for example, mixing in the workplace. That has resulted in, in turning Saudi women into the least economic productive persons in the world. Um, the, um, the economic uh, participation rate uh, in 2010 was 5.5. It was uh, still the lowest. It has increased a bit, but it is still the lowest in the world. Um, the problem is uh, it is not um, uh, th this number hasn't appeared or reached uh, just by chance. It is actually by design that compromise uh, to the religious establishment. And it, uh, the state compromises so that this is what happens. Publicly, they were refrained from any political post and were prevented from being in control of their own movement uh, by prohibiting women, as you know, driving cars or to travel without their, the consent of their guardians, even if they were their own sons. No matter how old they were, no matter how qualified they were, uh, or what is the age or qualification of the guardian. Um, and although, according to the basic law of Saudi Arabia, uh, women have a legal capacity equal to men, um, it has mostly exceptional clauses that lead uh, to, the, uh, to undermining women's equity or freedom. Some of these clauses turned into legal terms, uh, actually, that institutionalized women's dependence on another person, depri deprivation of legal capacity, and turning her into, as you know, permanent perpetual minor. Uh, despite, despite all the above, one can't deny that uh, the state is trying its best to solve these problems and to amend some of these obstacles or casualties. But the problem is that it fails most of the time to give a solution to the root of the problem and keep it to the surface. That resulted in turning these attempts into a window dressing uh, or a weak solution that uh, do not uh, and does not change the reality of the issue uh, that is keeping Saudi women at the back of the world and um, the back of their countrymen. On the other hand, women's response was unexpected to all the attempts uh, that, that were carried out by design or, uh, or not by design to control women. They overwhelmed the, the education system, actually, and shortly they outnumbered male students in schools and universities, even though many disciplines were denied to them. Um, they, uh, here I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about education since it started in the 60s. It started with lots of restriction on, uh, uh, in objectives, uh, in the objectives or the vision of, uh, uh, of education. Um, so not only that, uh, I actually have cl uh, classified or defined uh, female activism in Saudi Arabia roughly in three or four categories. We'll go through them just quickly. Uh, one, I call it traditional position, if we are to consider it activism. But anyway, this, uh, this line uh, considers feminism or emancipation as bad words. Uh, and it, uh, the trend follows the official line of, um, that denies any wrongdoing in women's status. Or the, it doesn't, it's, it's an, in denial all, all the time. Uh, 
and they believe that any change to women's status should uh, should be led by the state or by the traditional educational institution. Uh, the second, I call it the enlightened position that started since the 30s uh, with pioneer male activists, actually, uh, who called for women's rights, uh, right to, in, to education, such as Muhammad Hassan Awad or uh, Muhammad Saeed Khoja, Ahmed Al-Sibai, uh, Muhammad Al-Qasimi, uh, Abdullah Al-Qasimi, Abdul Karim Al-Jihaman, uh, Hamad Al-Jasir, and so on. Uh, followed this voice where uh, women who uh, were educated early in the century and were lucky to study abroad. Uh, one of them is with us, Dr. Madawi Rashid here. Uh, many of them came back with an enlightened vision as to women's rights, uh, holding individually positions outside the country uh, in international organizations or teaching in uh, outside universities, such as Dr. Athraya Abed, Dr. Athraya Turki, Dr. Ramadan Rashid, and many others. Other women made uh, a collective move that uh, reached its peak in November 6th. Uh, 1990, when 47 women uh, took their cars, car steers, and drove in Riyadh, challenging the ban on driving. The movement managed to mark for Saudi women public activism, and that moment signaled, uh, in my mind, the embarkment of uh, uh, embarkment of Saudi feminism. The debate that took place in society after this incident was a remarkable, so as, as it was vicious, there's a long, a long story goes with it. In spite of that, um, demonstrations, uh, I just wanted to say that the story of driving is actually a, a very long, a long one. And since uh, it, it's been now over 25 year, 27 years and we are still struggling with it. Yeah, yeah. I hope that, um, well, I don't know if we are going to live at a day when we are. Uh, in spite of, uh, of that, uh, demonstration succeeded. It succeeded in attracting the attention of the status of Saudi women nationally and internationally. There were also many active non-official women groups that belonged to this line, emerged to form some type of pressure groups uh, for reform, such as Sunday Women's Group, which uh, uh, Dr. Caroline Montague wrote about a few years ago um, in Riyadh. More groups were set up after 9-11, uh, such as Family Safety Group. Uh, there is Saudi Women, uh, Saudi women Writers in 2006. Uh, there is Society for Defending Saudi Women's Rights in 2007, the, the Divorce Initiative uh, in 2009, uh, the Abolition of Wakil, uh, at the same time, no to minor marriage, uh, women to drive in 2011, driving 26 October 2013, uh, again uh, in 2014, uh, well, the driving keeps on every year. And uh, this year, uh, as you know, we are, no, and since 2010, we, we had the Baladi Initiative that uh, succeeded in 2015, uh, for having women participating in the municipal elections, uh, but today we have uh, we're running with uh, with another uh, uh, pressure uh, groups uh, that are adopting uh, the slogan of "Stop Enslaving Saudi Women" and end, end guardianship. The guardianship campaign: Saudi women demand the end of guardianship, etc. 
what we what is known as Isqat uh, al-Wilayah. The third voice, um, I call it the revival Islamist, which follows on the one part, a radical uh, line that believes in women's rights, rights through literal sharia. Uh, and the other believes in, uh, actually it, is, it has two, two, two forms. One that looks at, uh, uh, considers that women can find their, their, their rights through um, literally following uh, the lines of, uh, of Sharia. And another one is actually uh, looking at women's rights through reinterpretation, uh, their position in Islam, challenging actually the religious institution, which could be coined as Islamic feminism. Uh, and this is actually an, emo an emerging voice. It's uh, it's still in um, in in the. Uh, yani it is shaping still its uh, its voice. Uh, perhaps I should add a fourth category, uh, since most of the uh, tendents here are are youth. The fourth category is what I call it uh, the youth of Saudi Arabia's voice. This category is creating a parallel society culture and state uh, that is creating its own terms and uh, and words logos language and art this is why i couldn't <laughs> I could, and, and this is why uh, our generation uh, wouldn't know uh, this younger generation uh, vice versa yeah? so but sometimes you you manage to know so <laughs> um, but anyway this voice is uh, is emerge, emerging as a very powerful one. Uh, it's a generation who grew up beyond the limits of the two TV channels that we grew up with. Um, at the time of the integration of uh, uh, popularization of the satellite TVs since mid-90s and the advent of internet that adopted the space, that opened the space since 1999 and the revolution of information that followed that and later on social media that wiped out any limits of control on, uh, uh, by the state's uh, hegemony on the, on the youth. They were beyond and they are now beyond that reach to an extent that they are not affected by, by a lot of what the state is trying to do to regain control. Um, I'm not going to uh, go further. I think I've taken much, uh, uh, lots of time, but I, I want to end by uh, giving also a positive note on that the fruit of activism yielded in, actually in September 25th, uh, 25 in 2011, when uh, King Abdullah announced uh, granting women their political full, full rights according to the, um, the context of Saudi Arabia, of course. Um, in the only two quasi-democratic institutions of public representation, which are the Shura Council and Municipal Councils. Uh, in 2013, uh, 30 women entered the Shura Council, forming 20% of, uh, of the group. Uh, in 2017, the second uh, turn or uh, round of, uh, of Shura women started with another 30. It didn't change. Um, well, they are all, all the Shura Council anyway is a point by appointment, so there was nothing about uh, elections or about uh, choice here. Um, whereas the municipal councils um, uh, that were announced in 2011 uh, managed to have, uh, to, um, um, mani we managed in 2015 to have them running, to have the elections running. 
um, uh, although this is another story, it's a big, uh, long story of challenges and of um, assessment of what really happened here. But uh, um, if we want to give it a, a description, a quick description, this, is, this was a yield to women's demands. Um, the way in which it resulted in, uh, this is another question, uh, because we don't have uh, much, uh, much power o on how that was realized. However, uh, we managed to have 21 uh, women uh, elected out of 1,000 candidates, uh, which is a number th um, um, that shocked us, even, even us as we were running the, the, the scene. Majority of these women came from actually the outskirts of major cities, uh, which was, I think, the surprise not for us only, but the, for the state, which wasn't very much prepared for this reaction or this result. Still a very small number, 21 out of, I don't know what, 4,000 or something like that. Uh, and uh, 17 women who were appointed. Uh, one of the elected one women resigned because the emerging uh, uh, story of uh, women have to sit in different rooms than men. Uh, it's a different, it's another, uh, as we were, the alien. But anyway. uh, I'll end up by saying that Saudi women are not silent and they are not passive. They are strugglers, they are survivors, and they will never be afraid to ask for what they well, well deserve. Thank you. Thank you.